So I'm very glad to be here. As Mike said, I uh, was a church planter for some years in Moncton for about seven years. Presbytery closed our church plant down three years ago, I believe now. And uh, so now I am the guy who goes around and fills in for people. And just about every Sunday, especially in the summertime, I'm somewhere. I think this summer I'm preaching in six or seven different congregations. Just about every Sunday, I'm somewhere. Uh, but during that time, we planted a church, uh, what's called uh, kind of a parachute plant. It was in a community that we knew and that we were from and that I'd lived in for many years. Uh, but we started without a group and we just started gathering people in our home and we met in hockey rinks, we met in a farmer's market. Uh, during that time, I baptized 24 people, uh, 17 of them on profession of faith. So that's a little bit unusual for Presbyterian ministers to mostly baptize adults, but that's what we did. And so it's, uh, it was a good time, a good experience, and now I teach sales and marketing at a business college. <laughs> so during the week, I, and yes, I use church illustrations in my lectures. I can always tell who goes to church by the way they give a little side eye when I use a church illustration. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 40 this morning, but I'm not going to be looking at the whole psalm. The psalm is, of course, a collection of songs. Uh, this psalm has seven different songs. If you look at the paragraph breaks in the way that's broken down in your bulletin, you can distinguish them. Uh, they're basically, the structure is essentially every six lines. Uh, if you were to lay it out in Hebrew in, in, in six lines, you would see the, 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 the break. Hebrew poetry kind of shows itself up on the page. Even if you don't read Hebrew, it's sometimes helpful to just look at the text on the page in, when you're looking at the Psalms and just see where the natural flow and the natural breaks are. So I'm going to reread uh, the first couple of verses for the first song of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, Many will see it in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Thus far, God's word. Thank you so much for making us feel welcome uh, this morning to Mike. I especially appreciate having the prayer for the elderly. It made me feel appreciated. It made me feel seen to be here. Uh, it is, it's an important thing, though. I, I just as an aside... Uh, you know, I don't know any of you know of Tom Holland, not the actor, but the Oxford historian and classicist. Tom Holland was a, a historian who specialized in the, in the time of the Greeks and the Romans. Well, he still does. Uh, he was an atheist, and he had this epiphany one time, uh, and he said, you know, I've devoted my life to reading the Greeks and uh, reading about them and their life and their times, and I love their philosophy. I love their culture. I love so much about them. But they're really despicable people. They were terrible to women. They were terrible to their slaves. And they were terrible to old people. And he thought to himself, well, why do I think that? Why do I think that the way that the Greeks treated the elderly and women and slaves was so bad? According to the philosophy, which I admire so much, what they're doing is perfectly natural. And then he realized that even though he was an atheist, his entire view of what was right and wrong and the appropriate and inappropriate way to treat the elderly and women and people who had less power than you was entirely formed by Christianity. And this shocked him to his core. 
It led ultimately to his conversion and written a great history of Christianity called Dominion, which I highly recommend. Uh, but it's, it's useful for us to remind ourselves sometimes, especially in corporate worship of things like this, of these themes, that it is so important for us to focus on these things. This is really the distinctive thing that Christianity brings to the world of all of the other religions that we encounter. So that was free. That was not the sermon. You don't have to pay any extra for that. I want to tell you a story about a young man that I know. Every young man has a dream. Many of those dreams involve uh, traveling away from home to the big city and finding fame and wealth and beautiful women and success by playing your guitar and singing songs that you wrote. I'm sure some of you have shared that dream of my friend. Once upon a time, maybe before student loans and marriage and mortgage and children and work responsibilities kind of pushed it far into the background. But this young man made it. He no longer played his guitar just at family reunions and for the small town crowds of tens and tens of his neighbors. He was now in the big city. Pretty girls followed him. Crowds flocked to hear him. He had more money than he'd ever dreamed of. His manager told him that this was just the beginning. Even greater fame and fortune was waiting for him just around the corner. He was about to make it even further into the big time. Uh, but as so often the case with this kind of success, jealousy is not far behind. And it's too frequently the case, the green-eyed monster arises among those closest to us and dearest to us, and within his own inner circle, his own manager even began to resent his success and resent the adulation of the crowds that followed him everywhere. And he began to resent him, and his jealousy grew until it became hatred. Could he not even stand the sight of his young protege? Just like Colonel Tom Parker, who negotiated those contracts for a young Elvis Presley that paid Tom as his manager 50% of Elvis's earnings began to resent Elvis as he became more and more successful. It reached the point that he went for years as the manager of Elvis, not even seeing him. The relationship turned sour just like this one did. But unlike Elvis and Colonel Parker, who just kept apart from each other, in this case, this relationship descended into actual violence. One night in an alcohol-fueled rage, his manager tried to kill him. Barely escaping with his life, he fell in with a sort of shady hangers-on that so often attracted to those in the music and entertainment industry there that's the connection between legitimate entertainers and actual criminals. Think of Dr. Dre, Suge Knight, right? Or Tupac and the Crips who eventually killed him. Isolated and alone and far from home and too embarrassed to go back and afraid of this, he descended into an underworld populated by criminals far from his middle-class small-town roots. But this story doesn't end as so many that we have heard and know in an overdose alone in obscurity. It ends in some of the most heartfelt lyrical poetry some of the best songwriting that you've ever heard. And in songs that even years later are still repeated and still top the charts. It ends 
actually in a new beginning and a new life. An even greater career and even greater success than before. And what might be considered, I would say, is the birth of the blues. It ends actually in those lines I just read to you a few moments ago. Because Psalm 40, to my mind, is the birth of the blues. And the story that I've been telling with a few liberties that I hope you now recognize is the story of King David. It's the story of David, the young singer, who comes to Jerusalem at the invitation of Saul, his mentor, who begins to resent his fame and his success and eventually tries to kill him and drives David out into the caves with the criminals and the outcasts of society. And then returning finally back home. I have a friend who's a blues musician. I texted him last night to make sure my definition was legit. This is what I'm calling the blues. Songs of hope written in hard times. That's what Psalm 40 is. These are songs of hope written by someone who has experienced the lowest lows, who had reached what he thought at that point in his life was the pinnacle of success, only to find it all taken away and crashing down, sleeping in a cave with murderers. Psalm 40 definitely qualifies as the blues. The sermon this morning has only three points. Every life has trouble. Hope is justified. And our rescue and our hope come from God. Every life has trouble. David's life, on one hand, seemed like he had everything going for him. He becomes a king. He's been anointed as a king. He, he has this promise of a future greater than he could have ever imagined. He's famous. He's killed Goliath. He's praised by all the people. Literally, women flock to him. They dance in the streets when he comes through town. He's married to a beautiful young woman, the daughter of the most powerful man, the king. It's hard for us to understand just what it's like in a pre-modern ancient Near Eastern society for somebody to be uh, this kind of royalty and this kind of famous. But imagine it's like this. It's like being heavyweight champion of the world. Maybe I should say undisputed. It's undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And being the male vocalist who just won the Grammy for your number one chart-topping album and having just won the Oscar for best male performance in the highest grossing movie of the past year. All in one person. That's what David's life was like. It seemed like a charmed life, plucked from rural obscurity, surrounded by riches, by adoring crowds. He played music and he sang and everybody wanted to hear him. Everybody wanted to be his friend. Everyone wanted to be with him. You look at David's life at that point and you feel like I do sometimes when I scroll through Instagram and I think, wow, have they ever got it together? I'm sure I'm the only one that does that, right? You ever look at Facebook or social media of some kind and you're like, whew, I wish I had their life. But David's wife left him. Ends up committing adultery. He ends up lonely, homeless. He had a son at one point who tried, who tried to depose him, who nearly did depose him, who hunted him down to kill him. That's pretty low. Having a child who wants to kill you. I don't think any of us have experienced that yet. 
When David says he's in the miry bog, he's in this pit, it's, it's like what he's describing. It's like, a, it's like a metaphor. It's like being in a bog with no bottom and trying to run. And every time you try to put your foot down, it just sinks further and further. And you try to take another step and you just can't move. It's like that nightmare. I'm sure some of you have had it as well, where there's something terrifying chasing you. Maybe an angry dog or a mob or zombies and you're trying to run, but all of a sudden you can't run. Or if you have small children, you're trying to rescue your children from the lions or the dog or whatever, and you just can't reach them. That's what David is describing. He says, I was in a pit. I was in a place where I just couldn't move. I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't go forward. I had no control over it myself. We look at other people. They're carefully curated social media, and we think they've got no problems. It's just me who feels like this. It's just me who worries about my kids. It's just me who's concerned about my job. They've got everything. They've got everything going right for them. But let me tell you something that I've learned over long experience. That when you see that picture of that loaf of bread that they baked themselves on a weekday, the reason why it's taken so close up it's not so you can see the beautiful uh, structure of that artisanal loaf and the perfect char. That is, no, 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 no. It's so you can't see the chaos in the rest of the room. Right? What we see of other people is actually not real. Social media is not the truth. We think sometimes our problems are so bad, so difficult, so overwhelming when we compare them to a false image of other people's lives. Every life has trouble. I don't know what your trouble is, but I know enough about life to know that the statement from the book of Job is true, that man is born to trouble as sure as the sparks fly up. Oh, we've been on vacation last week. We've got a cabin. We've been going up there and having campfires and you know, doing this. Every time you sit around a campfire, you know, at night, it gets dark and the sparks are going up. It's inevitable. Every time you have a campfire, it happens. That's what our life is like. Sometimes we're tempted to think that our trouble is unique, that nobody could possibly understand just what it's like to struggle with a spouse like mine. Nobody could understand what it's like to have the illness that I have. No one has ever suffered like this before. No one has the kind of coworkers I have. No one has ever had a boss like my boss. Uh, Louis Armstrong saying it this way, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. But the New Testament tells us something different. It says no temptation or difficulty or trial has taken you, but such as is common to mankind. All of the things that you face, everyone else faces too at some point. So no matter what your trouble is, let me remind you that hope is justified. In spite of David's hard times, and let's be honest, having your son try to kill you is probably as low as it gets for a parent. David definitely suffered hard times. 
Interest rates rise. I have a friend who's a mortgage broker who told me last week that the recent rise in interest rates meant that one-third of Canadians who are pre-approved for mortgages currently will not be able to close the mortgages because of the increase when it comes time to close the deal. The bank is going to tell them, sorry, you're no longer qualified. One-third. That's trouble. A house you buy to buy is now out of reach. Some people are going through that right now. Maybe some people are going through the strain of a marriage that's stressed by both people working from home and being stuck in the same house for the last two years. That's hard times. I hope none of you are undergoing this, but I have been talking for the last little more than a year with a, with a mom, four children, married for 15 years, who just over a year ago discovered that her husband was sexually molesting their daughter. That's hard times to go through. You feel like it can't get any worse. And no matter how trouble, your trouble looks to others, when you're the one who's suffering, it's big enough. Sufficient unto the day or sufficient unto your own time and life is the trouble thereof. But yet, in the middle of David's troubles, he has hope. Hope. So he says, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined and heard my cry. In English, it's a, it's a beautiful, lyrical, poetic way to state it. Uh, but, you know, in the original, it goes like this. I waited. I waited. And the way that it's structured, it's like an unending sequence. I waited. I waited. I waited. I waited. He just keeps waiting, knowing that all of the things that have happened to him, God is still out there. David has hope. And literally, he waited, he waited, he waited. And then notice what David says, and he inclined. Literally, God leaned down to me. He reached right down where I was. I was in the middle of this bog, and I'm up to here. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk through a bog. Uh, they always you know, start out thinking, you know, it's only so deep. And then the next thing you know, you deeper and deeper. And then you can't move. We were at the Boggs of Christian McQuack a couple of years ago. And hat blew off into the bog. And I was like, oh, I can get that. <laughs> Step off of the trail. You're like, no, I, I cannot get that. I don't care what it is out there. I'm not going to be able to get it. David says God leaned down and heard his cry. He's crying out, he, he's crying out, and his crying out is a form of a prayer. It's a hopeful prayer that God will hear him, and God does. And your hope is justified because our hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. The same Lord who never slumbers or sleeps, the same Lord who provided for us a way of salvation by that great sacrificial gift of his son, the greatest, most sacrificial rescue mission ever, came down to pull David out of his ball. And pull us out of our troubles. And pull us out of our sins. This is our great hope. That in the midst of all of the troubles and sins that we have. And let me tell you something. You are worse than you're prepared to admit. That's the reality of sin. The reality of sin is it's not only that there's bad things, bad thoughts and desires inside of our hearts. But we deceive ourselves about how bad they are. 
This is the insidious nature of the sinful nature that we are born with. Is not just that we desire to do wrong things, but that we lie to ourselves and say it's not that bad. In the midst of this, Jesus came into the world. And Jesus didn't just come to give us a good example. As Tom Holland tells the story, he could look at the Greeks and he could find great examples of nobility. He could find great examples of sacrifice. He could find great examples of artistic brilliance and philosophical heights. But then that same person would go home and rape his slave. Would casually condemn an old person to death. Because the deceptiveness of the sin in which they lived. And this is how we all are. Jesus did not just come to give us a good example. He came to die and to rise again so that we might live. And David sings out his response. David's hope takes the form of song. His song is the song of hope in the middle of troubles. And this is that our rescue, thirdly, and our songs both come from God. I want us to see two things. That David is rescued. His rescue is sure. God will rescue him. He will pull him out. He will put his feet on the solid rock. And his response is to sing. David's troubles, like the sins that trouble all of us that we're struggling with, is something that we cannot fix on our own. We can't... uh, give ourselves enough resolutions or enough affirmations to work our way out of it. The bottomless bog that David describes is one that you cannot pull yourself out of because you can never get a hold of anything. At our cabin, we're on the, on the banks of a river. There's a point where we go down to the river to swim and to fish, and it's kind of steep. And when you're climbing back up, especially if you're wet, uh, you know, we grab at a root or grab at a branch, you know, to pull yourself up. And you, it, it, because the, the, the trail is kind of bare dirt and it turns to mud as you're going back up. But if you can get just a little bit of something to hold on to, we finally put a rope. So we don't have to grab roots and branches anymore. But that's what it was like. We were grabbing roots and branches because any little thing would pull us up. But David's describing a bog where there's nothing to pull yourself out of. Only intervention from God can pull him out of it. Uh, More than 10 years ago, I gave a brief devotional on Psalm 40. Uh, We were operating at the time, my wife and I were operating something we call Moncton Community Fellowship, which was a free dinner every Sunday night uh, in the farmer's market downtown. And you could come. We had a kind of open mic worship. Um, Whoever showed up with an instrument could play. It was very eclectic. Uh, It was very emergent. So people would show up with their instruments, they would play, we would sing songs, we would eat dinner together, and I would give a little devotional. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it attracted a lot of people, um, uh, especially one of the groups of people that attracted a lot of young people who wanted to play their guitars, especially young guys who wanted to play. I think one Sunday night we had three bass guitars. <laughs> so it was just whoever was there, you know, you could play. Uh, but it attracted a lot of young people who wanted to play instruments and uh, hang out downtown, and it attracted a lot of seniors whose churches didn't have evening services and they just wanted something to do and fellowship and a meal that they didn't have to cook themselves. And so they would come and a lot of immigrants who wanted to practice English. Those were the three groups that we got. Well, one of the older ladies came up to me afterwards, very excited, very big smile on her face. And she said, I know exactly what that song means. And she told me this story. That months before she lived alone, 
She had gone to the bathroom one evening and she had slipped and fallen on the floor and broken her hip. And then she laid on the floor in pain, uh, a broken hip, and she reached up to pull the door open so she could open the door so she could get to the phone to call someone, to call 911, to call a family member, and she realized she was laying on the floor and could not pull the door open past herself. She laid there for a while and she thought, well, I have to get myself up. And so she reached up for the towel bar and tried to use it. And she pulled herself partway up at the towel bar and then she fell back to the floor with the towel bar, now detached from the wall. She laid there for a little while longer, uh, recovering her strength. And then she opened the door to the vanity and, and, and she used the door to pull herself up. It's quite a genius, I thought. Until the hinges Screws gave way, and the hinges pulled out, and the door crashed off of vanity, and she fell back to the floor. She said, I laid there on the floor knowing I cannot get myself out of here. I can't get up, and I can't get the door open. I can't get to the phone. I'm going to lay here until someone comes to my house and discovers me. It was early in the evening, and she laid there all night. She said, I just cried out to God. She laid there to the next morning and she realized that she needed to stay hydrated. But she could no longer, she couldn't get up. She stiffened to the point that she could no longer get up and to reach to the sink. And so she had to keep herself hydrated the only way she could. She said, I'm laid there and I thought, how could it get worse than this? My leg is broken. I can't move. I'm going to die of dehydration in pain and not get out of this room. And she said, I just kept crying out. I kept crying out to God. And her brother, who was about 10 years younger than her, stopped by to say hello to her on his way to work, which he never did. Knocked on the door, rang the bell. And she didn't come to the door. He thought, that's unusual. She's always up early. She's always sitting at the table drinking tea and looking at the newspaper this time of the day, wonder where she is. And so he rattled the door and he called out her name and didn't hear anything and she was at that point too weak to even cry out and so he used his key to open the door and he came in and with the greatest of ease opened the door and pulled her out called 911 and sent her to the hospital and she said that my heart was singing she said when i got to the hospital and to the emergency room they said why are you so happy and she said because i was rescued this is the story of Psalm 40. She got it. She lived through it. And she understood what David was saying. I can't get myself out of my own troubles, but God can rescue me. And the natural response is to, cry, is to sing out. This is all of us. We're not laying on the bathroom floor helpless with a broken leg or a broken hip. But as the New Testament says, we are all dead in our trespasses and our sins. Helpless, that is, until God leans down and picks us up and puts us on solid ground. Now note the next thing that happens. He lifted him up and then it says he put a new song in his heart. Put a new song in my mouth, excuse me. Uh, there is a reason why Christian worship services involve so much singing. And there's a reason why we end the service traditionally with the doxology. I forgot to look. You guys do end with the doxology. No. 
Okay, maybe you will today. Uh, there's a reason why we traditionally uh, have the doxology towards the end, after the sermon or after the communion, as a response because doxology or praise to God is the only natural human reaction to having heard the word of God tell you that no matter what your troubles are, God can lift you out of them. He can lift you out of them by coming to you and hearing you and lifting you and rescuing you, and he puts a new song in your heart. The only proper response to the great rescue of the gospel is to sing. Notice something else here. This is just like a, a little aside as we close this out. I want you to notice what he says. He says, and many shall hear and fear and put their trust in God. You realize what David is saying here? He's saying singing praises to God for our salvation and for our rescue is evangelism. Many will hear and fear, that means honor God, and put their trust, that is their belief, they will follow him. They will believe that he is a God who loves them and will save them because they heard the songs of rescued people. This is what the blues are. They're songs of hope in difficult times. And in a sense, all Christian music is kind of like the blues because our music recognizes that we live in a broken world and are broken people and are sinners. But God calls out to us to save us. He draws us to himself. He offers us his salvation. He puts us on a solid ground. And then our response in the midst of that is to sing. And when we sing, People hear, and they put their trust in God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these psalms, which are to us uh, a songbook and a sample and an outline of the gospel and an encouragement to us to know that you will rescue us, you will save us, and you will give us a new song. Father, may we sing this new song of people who are rescued by the gospel, and may these songs of our life be a means of sharing the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.